students to come on up front and have a seat up here. Come on up. All right, come on up, find a spot to sit. Good to see you this morning. All right. Now, this morning, I have a helper with me. Right? Violet's here to help. Here she is. All right. Now, I have a question for you. Can Violet take care of herself, or does she need someone else to take care of her? Can, can she get her, do you think she got herself dressed this morning? Or do you think she had help? Do you think she makes herself lunch every day? Or do you think maybe she changes her own diaper? Probably not. Could she keep herself safe from danger? Probably not real great, right? She is totally dependent upon somebody else, right? Dependent, that means she can't take care of herself, right? If she didn't receive care from anyone else, it, it wouldn't go very well for her, would it? She could try as hard as she wants. She could put lots of effort into it, but she just can't care for herself. She doesn't have enough strength. She doesn't have enough wisdom. She needs somebody else in order to help her survive and be safe, right? Who do you think Violet depends on? Her, her mom and dad, right? Yeah. Maybe some others help care for her too, but they are the main ones who care for her, right? So she is dependent upon them, right? Now, do you know that all of us are totally dependent upon God, aren't we? God gives us breath and life. God keeps us safe. God provides for us. God takes care of us. And without God, we would be completely helpless, wouldn't we? But sometimes, you know what we do? Sometimes we think that we're in control of everything. Or we try to control everything in our lives. Right? We try to do things on our own because we think we are in control and we have to have control all the time. So similar to how Violet is dependent upon her mom and dad, we are totally dependent upon God. And we need to trust Him completely. Right? Do you think the persecuted, the people who are persecuted for their faith... Do you think they can handle all their situations on their own? Or do they need to rely on God? They need to rely on Him and trust in Him, right? They're dependent upon Him, and so are we. So how do we do that? How do we show complete trust in God, right? If our trust in God, we need to trust Him, we need to depend on Him. It's shown through simple obedience, right? Being faithful, like the persecuted Christians ask us to pray for them, that they would just be faithful, that they would be simply obedient to God, right? When we follow God and we're, we're obedient to what he says in the Bible, his word, then it demonstrates our trust and our dependence upon him. If we try to control everything and do everything on our own and live our lives apart from God, it shows that we really don't trust him, right? But when we recognize that we are totally dependent upon God, We'll believe what he says and we'll follow him no matter what, right? So when you see little cuties like this one, right, completely dependent upon others to care for them, other, completely dependent upon others for their well-being, we can be remembered that we too are completely dependent upon God for our well-being. We need to trust him 
and depend on him all the time. All right, good. Thanks for coming up, everybody. I'll return Violet to her mom and dad, and you guys can return to your seats. All right. Thank you, Pastor Jeff. Thank you, Dr. Pat. That was excellent. Um, it makes considering moving to a, a new building peanuts in comparison to what others are suffering for Christ. And so I'd encourage you to stick around afterwards and learn more so that you can consider how you might be more involved there. Uh, nonetheless, we, are, uh, we have been given this good gift of God in a new building. And I want to take a few weeks and consider... How can we do this well to God's glory? What does it look like for us to transition to a new building in a way that is pleasing to Him? Jesus said in Luke 12, 48, Everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of Him they will ask all the more. Uh, I think I want to relate this to our new building. Uh, God has given us more. And this doesn't mean we've arrived this doesn't mean we've now have the opportunity to kick back and put up our feet. It means that more is now required of us. We talk about this with our kids. We're trying to give our kids more than what we got as far as an education, as far as a Christian upbringing. And this means that more is going to be required of them. And so Pine Grove, I want to do this for the next four or five weeks. Think about that verse. We've been given much. Much will be required. What does it look like uh, for us to do this well? Now, just quick update. Uh, you know that we have the asbestos being abated. That's going to happen this next week. They'll come Tuesday or Wednesday and hopefully have it out by the weekend. So that should be done. And then we'll be uh, building in earnest. We have the parsonage or the rectory. Uh, some of our folks have been in there cleaning it, moving stuff out, getting that ready. We'll likely be leasing that, and so some people are doing some good work on that, thank God. Most of you have signed up in the back, which is great. Uh, so in the coming weeks, you'll start being contacted. We'll really get going in the coming weeks. Uh, and so I, I want us to consider what does it look like to be faithful in regards to that. Now, well, one of the things that Keith in our prayer time before the service prayed for is that we, or said, I don't remember if it was prayed or said, that we also don't want to kind of put everything on hold until we move into a new building. We, we are still a church. We still have ministry to be given. And so let's be faithful until that time as well. But for now, let's uh, look. So we're going to start in Psalm 127 this morning. Psalm chapter 127. If you're a visitor, I think this will be very applicable to you, even if you're not moving with us to our new building. Uh, there's much in here that will fit your life as well. Uh, so Psalm 127. <clears throat> Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth, Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He will not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Let's pray. Lord, we want to turn to you in faith 
And so, God, would you uh, not let us be put to shame as we delight in your commands, as we meditate on your statutes? God, would your steadfast love come to us as we consider uh, this transition in a way that honors you? In Christ's name, amen. So a brief word about the Psalms, if I can, before we jump into Psalm 127. The, the, the book of Psalm uh, is a very different book than the rest of the books of the Bible because it is a compilation of a whole bunch of songs. David wrote most of them, but there's several other authors. David had this book compiled and it was completed. Uh, and so it's a, it's a book that isn't like other books and it was written typically by one author from beginning to end. This is a compilation by many authors, 150 different songs. These are actually songs to be sung. In fact, our section, Psalm 120 section, or 127, is in a 15 chapter section that is grouped into uh, groups of three. Five groups of three, beginning in Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. These are called the Psalms of Ascent. You'll notice that uh, title at the beginning of each of these 15 Psalms. You'll see that, a Song of Ascent. In the beginning of our chapter, a Song of Ascent of Solomon. A Psalm of Ascent, or of a pilgrimage, was given as a mini songbook of 15 songs that were to be sung as the pilgrims traveled once a year from wherever they lived to Jerusalem for the feast. And so these were traveling songs. You guys maybe do that as you sit in the car going places you sing. That's what these were for. And uh, these groups of three, um, the first of a group would expose or express a difficulty or a problem. The second song in the set of three would focus on God's sufficiency to protect and to keep. And the third would focus on going to Zion and security in Zion and God's blessings in Jerusalem, in the promised city. Our Psalm 127 is the first of a group of three and expresses a problem. And that problem is self-sufficiency. The problem really is you. Um, Jim Mogg, the former elder, moved away. He, he has a saying that he says, if you're with him at all time, that you've met the enemy and the enemy is us. That's what Psalm 127 is. Our uh, focus on ourselves and our ability, apart, our, not our ability, our foolish thinking that we're able to do whatever we do apart from God. So Psalm 127 is in two parts. We have this problem of self-sufficiency where this term vain uh, is repeated, that trying to do something apart from the Lord is vain. That is, it doesn't work. Uh, so there is the problem. The second half then is a prime example of where you might need God's blessing most in the having and raising of children. And all the parents say, amen. That is, you can't have a child apart from God. And you can't raise a child in the Lord apart from God. And so that is the best example of this principle of the need for God. All right. So that's Psalm 127. That's Psalms in a, in a book. We, so we are in this middle of these songs on pilgrimage. That's good, isn't it? That's us now, isn't it? We're moving. We're going someplace. And so this psalm has much to say to us. All right. So you can't understand Psalm 127 apart from Genesis 1 to 3. So I want you to turn there, if you would, keep your finger in Psalm 127 and turn to Genesis 1 to 3. Because Psalm 127 is about building, is about working, is about this good gift of God and, and how we can't do it apart from God. So in, Psalm, or in Genesis 1 to 3, who do we meet right at the front? We meet God. God is the creator. 
God is the sovereign Lord. God is in charge of everything. God has all the power, all the strength, all the wisdom. He alone is big C creator. We then, as you know, are creatures created in his image. So what do we see God doing in Genesis 1? Creating, working, being fruitful. God has, in fact, been doing this for all eternity. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is called the eternally begotten Son of God. That is, God has been eternally fruitful. He has been begetting. Now, the Son isn't created in that He uh, didn't have a beginning and then began, but nonetheless, the point is, God is a creator. God is a fruitful God. In fact, God sent His Son to earth to bear many sons and daughters. And so God is a fruitful God. We then are created His image to work to bear fruit. Look at Genesis 1, 28. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. Look at 2, 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to keep it. Part of you and I being created in God's image is to work and be fruitful, to increase, to expand the boundaries, to have lots of children, to teach them to be fruitful. All right? So, relate that to Psalm 127 then. You see in Psalm 127 that we are to build, we are to protect. This is Genesis 1 and 2 language all over the place. And, 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 and so we are to work hard and to be fruitful. So, men, women, it is a good thing to work. It's a good thing to be fruitful. It's a good thing to have lots of children and teach them to do the same. But, of course, uh, the Bible doesn't end in Genesis 2. It continues on to Genesis 3 where we meet the problem. Sin. So the, the good gift of work, the command to uh, bear fruit comes before the fall. Right? So work isn't a curse. It's a good gift of God. But because of the fall... Work is now cursed. And one of the curses that we see right away in Genesis 3 is self-sufficiency. I'm going to do it on my terms. I'm going to do it in my way. I'm going to try to attempt to do this thing that God has given me to do to work and bear fruit apart from God. This is what Adam and Eve did, didn't they? They were told not to eat of the fruit. And what did they do? They went about that work on their own terms, apart from God. That is, the fruit would have been a reward of faithfulness, but they decided to not wait. They decided to go ahead, apart from God, apart from His blessing, and and get it on their own terms. Get it in their own way. Do it apart from God. And so this temptation towards self-sufficient, going ahead on our own terms, in our own way, is now... Uh, part and parcel of who we are in sin. And that's what we see in, in Psalm 127, if you want to turn back there. We try to build apart from God. We try to protect apart from God. We try to do this good gift apart from God. And, and this is the way we've been doing it throughout Scripture now. Remember the Tower of Babel? Here you see human beings creating God's image to work, doing a good thing, building, but trying to do it for their own purposes in their own strength. And what does God have to do with the Tower of Babel? Do you remember? 
It pictures God having to go down because their tower is so puny, right? Now, it doesn't mean God couldn't see it from heaven. It's showing us how futile our work is apart from God. You remember Abraham, Sarai, right? Given a great promise of God that through a descendant, God would bless all nations on earth. And what do Adam and, or Abraham and Sarah try to do? They try to accomplish the promise on their own. Sarah gives uh, her servant Hagar to Abraham to try to accomplish the promise that God had given on their own terms, on their own strength. It didn't work out very well. You have Jacob given great promise. He tries to obtain it through deceit. Israel at war would sometimes go against the foe without God, try to do it without prayer to God, and they would always end up defeated. David and Bathsheba, all the way down to you. You and I are prone to try to accomplish God's blessing in our own ways, for our own purposes, apart from God. So God created us to work. He created us to be fruitful, but he created us to do it in utter, complete dependence on him. But we have decided that we know more than God, that we are wiser than God, that we are stronger than God, and that we can do it on our own terms, in our own timing, in our own way. Right? And so we are our own worst enemies. And Psalm 127 calls this vain. Vain means that you do all of the effort, all of the planning, all of the working, But in the end, it turns out for nothing because God hasn't blessed it. In fact, God is against it. God opposes it, our work, our planning, our effort, because we are doing it for our own glory. We are doing it in our own way. Uh, We are doing it uh, totally apart from Him. And so we keep doing this Babel thing over and over and over and over again. It never, ever works. It never bears fruit. It always ends ends in a mess. It is always vain. So apply that to our new building. Here we have been given a good gift from God. In His timing, none of us saw it coming. We had totally different plans. God dropped this in our lap. God has provided it for us in a great way. Uh, and, and, And now... We have this tool, this object to build, to use for His glory. And so you and I are going to be tempted, though, to do this apart from Him. You and I are going to be tempted to go about this in our own way, in our own strength, in our own wisdom, in our own timing, apart from God. And we must not, because unless the Lord builds, we build in vain. Unless we continue to seek God in it with much prayer and much dependent on Him, we do it totally in vain. So what I want to do here is we see this principle in Psalm 127 that unless the Lord builds, we build in vain. Unless the Lord watches, we watch in vain. What would it look like to make this transition in a way that is dependent on God? What would it look like to move from here to there in a way that is the opposite of what Psalm 127 is warning us. How would we do this in a faithful way? Again, Psalm 127 is not at all condemning work. It's not at all condemning fruitfulness or protection. This is what we're made for. How can we do it in a way that it won't be vain? 
How can we do it in a way that will bless God? And you can apply this to anything in your life. You can apply this to your vocation, to your friendship. This is, you can apply this to ministry. You can apply this to raising your children, to your marriage, to everything. This is very applicable. The first thing I would say is your motive. Why are you doing what you're doing? Why are we doing this? Why are we deciding to move from here to there? What's it for? What's the goal? Why, why are we doing this? In one sense, uh, our motivation was space. Talked about that a lot, haven't we? We're, we've been, we, do, we, we don't have adequate parking. We fight to get in and out. We've heard from visitors that they do not come back because of how congested it is getting in and out. Um, most Sunday mornings we're packed in here and we have hardly any room in there. We don't have the adequate space that we would like for the programs we run as far as youth ministry and Awana and so on. And so space has been a pressing issue. I say that's not an adequate motive overall. It's not a bad motive in of itself, but that's not. It cannot be the adequate motive. We know in the new covenant we can worship God anywhere, gathered together, and, and it's fine. So what should be our primary motive in this? Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That should be our motive. We should want to transition from here to there to glorify and honor God, to be pleasing to Him in all things. So I want to encourage you, as you give towards this campaign, as you volunteer and put time and effort and energy and your skill to work, let's have hearts that desire to do what we're doing because God is God. Because he deserves all the glory. Let's do this wanting to be pleasing to him above and beyond everything else. Let's not settle for any other secondary motives. There are other fine motives, but our primary overarching motive should be to the glory of God. And so can I already say, as you've given to this, as you've given time to this, what's your heart motive behind it? Do you want it so that God can be praised in Rhinelander more? Let's let that be our motive. Second, a second way we can consider doing this in a way that's faithful is with much prayer. I think that is the overarching, simple application to this psalm. Unless the Lord builds, we build in vain. The first application should be, again, this is a call to prayer. We need to be prayerful in all things. Now, Jesus taught us how to pray. And one of the things we're taught over and over in the Bible, again, is to pray to our Father. If you did a search on prayer in the Bible, you would see, uh, in relation to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the overwhelming amount of prayer in the Bible is to the Father. There are a few prayers in the Bible directed to Jesus Christ, and I, can't, I haven't found one directed to the Spirit. And that is simply because we pray to the Father in the Son, by the Spirit. The Spirit is the one working in our prayers, and all of our prayers are through Christ to the Father. I want to say that because as we consider this transition, don't forget that we have God the Father, God our Father, watching over, working, protecting, and providing for us. As you pray, you aren't praying to one who is disinterested. You aren't praying to one who has to be kicked a few times before he takes notice. You're praying to one who is our Father. And what are we supposed to pray for? 
right? That His will be done in heaven and on earth. We want God's will in all of this transition to be done. And so we should be asking for that. Let's make this simple. As you consider anything involved with the transition, I want to urge you to begin it with prayer. Simple praying beforehand. We have another um, uh, garage sale coming up. Let's do that with prayer. As you come and drop off your stuff, let's do it prayerfully. As you gather to help clean out the rectory, let's start that work regularly with prayer. When you get together to fill in the big windows overlooking in the balcony, let's do it with prayer. When a team of you gets together to build the stage, let's do it with prayer. Let's carry on throughout it in prayer. Let's even ask each other as you're working, hey, anything going on in your life? What can we pray for? Let's be very prayerful throughout this whole thing. Third way that we can do this faithfully is we want to do it rigorously biblically. Unless the Lord build the house, we build in vain. One of the ways that we have to consider this is how do we do it informed by Scripture? Now, when I talk about Scripture, there are a couple ways that you and I have been taught to use the Bible. Typically, at the back of most of your Bibles is an... Oh, the word just dropped out of my head. Concordance. Sue, did you say that? Thanks. All right. Concordance. That is, you can look up a topic and find any number of verses related to that topic. That's a good way to use the Bible. So we're building, we're moving. There's lots in the Bible building and moving. That's one way to use your Bible. And we should do it that way. So you could, as you consider doing building or as you consider moving, you can use it as a concordance to find the topic. That's what I did for this sermon. I, I wanted to find something about dependence on God related to building. And as I looked, Psalm 127, that's a great text to speak to this. Another way to use the Bible is to realize that just about everything in the Bible can relate to whatever you're doing. You can take any text of Scripture with the principles and commands and relate it to what you're doing. And many of you do this very easily. You read the Bible, hopefully on a daily basis, right? You read the Bible on a daily basis, correct? And as you're reading it, one thing that I know you're doing is you're asking yourself, how does this apply to what I'm going to do today? You have something going on in your life, and when you read the Bible, you can't help but read what you're reading in light of what's going on in your life. And that's a really good thing to do. In fact, one of the things that I hate about the gospel-centered movement, I don't hate the gospel-centered movement, one of the things I hate about it is it's teaching you not to do that. In fact, it makes fun of you. If you take David and Goliath, one of the things being taught today is David and Goliath isn't about you conquering your enemies. It's about God's chosen servant, Jesus Christ, come and slaying the, di- the devil, whatever. And, and they take it out of your hands and keep it disconnected in the, something that's Christ only doing. Ah, yeah, 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 Christ is David in that. Christ is slaying the giant, but that also relates to what you're going on in your life. I want you to read the Bible in that way. Where, right, as a father... Whatever you read in the Bible is applicable to fatherhood, not only the text that's explicitly about fatherhood. And so I want us, as we go through this transition and move and building, to do so very biblically, to ask ourselves, how would the Bible inform what we're doing? How does the Bible inform your giving towards this? Whether or not you should. 
That's one of the things that we've done in Christianity is we've uh, relegated any uh, ongoing things in your life only to the realm of subjectivity. Should I do this or shouldn't I? Should, should I do this or shouldn't I? And you just kind of take it subjectively and wait for, for an impression from the Lord. Should I give to this or shouldn't I? What is the Lord asking me to do? And you just keep it in the total subjective realm. You know, the Bible has a ton objectively to say to everything in your life. But let's do what Dr. Pat is doing. Should you be involved at the persecuted church? In one sense, you could look at that subjectively and say, oh, I don't know if I should, I'm doing this, and I don't know if God's calling me. But the Bible makes it explicitly clear that every Christian should be involved at some level of persecuted Christians. It's not a subjective choice you get to make. It's an objective call, at least a prayer. And so I want us to be rigorously biblical as we go through what we're going through. I want us to search God's Word. And the fourth and final way, and there's many more, but this is what I want to do. How can we go through this in a way that's faithful? I'd say we should go through it with all kinds of gratefulness and thankfulness. We should be giving thanks to God constantly for what He was doing, what He has been, what He is, and what He will do throughout this all. When God is blessing what we're doing, God's people should always, always, always be responding with great and high and loud thankfulness. And, and you know, as I said last week, one of, the, one of the failures we have here is rather than thanking, we're almost always found to be grumbling. If you look at all throughout Scripture of God's blessing to His people, they almost inevitably respond with complaint. It's not enough. It's not when they want it. It isn't as they imagined it. Right? And so you guys are going to have lots of ways that you wish this would be different in this transition and change. And please do not respond there with grumbling. Now, there, there is a difference between grumbling and helping us see something that we should see better. And a lot of it is tone. Uh, I'm going to encourage you... To, to help us see what we're not seeing, to give us better ideas. But let's do it with all kinds of thankfulness. Another way to say it is, if you are somebody that we experience in our churches typically being a grateful, thankful, hardworking, good participant, we'll listen to criticism better. If you're known to be somebody who's a grumbler and a complainer, your criticisms are often going to fall on deaf ears. And rightfully so. If God is our God... If God has given us everything he's given us, why would we grumble and complain and whine and do all that? Why wouldn't we be very grateful? And so apply all of that to our building. Now the way that Psalm 127 applies, that are the example it gives, is to having children. So you have this principle in the first half of needing dependence on God, otherwise your work is in vain. You can do this kind of work in a way that you rise early, work late, and it's all anxiety-driven. It's all me-driven. It's all about me, and so you don't sleep well, you don't eat well, and it's, and it's vain. But the kind of work God wants to do is the kind that ends in sleep. And then he gives you the example of children. Right? I, I find it, I don't know, humorous. He, he says he gives to his beloved sleep, and then he goes right to children. How, how many of you had children? What's the one thing you get little of when you're having children? 
sleep. And it, and it doesn't get better because you know that the worries of a parent only increase as their children increase in age. The problems are small when your kids are small. They get bigger as your kids get bigger. And you know, as a parent, you want your child to be in the Lord. You want your child to love, trust, follow Christ greater than you have. You want them to do well in this life. Parenting never stops. Ever. I have seen elderly people dying, and the one thing that's on their heart is how their kids are doing. (laughs) 85 and gasping their last, and their main concern is their kids, what they didn't do well with them, what they want for them. There's no place that you are more prone to anxiety and sleeplessness and this kind of fretful working than in raising children. And what does the psalmist say? Behold, children are a gift from God. Children are a gift that are to be shot off in a certain direction. It's a blessing to fill your quiver with them. One of the things that you and I do in our carnal state is to see this as exactly opposite. It says, blessed is the man who fills his quiver quiver with them. And we think in our day, blessed is the person who has as few of them as possible. Because it's so hard. Don't laugh. Isn't this... Aren't we exactly opposite of this? The Bible everywhere, unless you are given the gift of celibacy, that is, you are given the gift of not needing sex, commends marriage and and commends it early. (laughs) The average age of marriage is now late 30s, maybe early 40s. Because we have to do all of this stuff ahead of time before we're ready for marriage. Exactly opposite of this. Because we're in control, right? Because it's our timing according to our means, our ways for our purposes. Parents, frankly, are the worst at this. Constantly telling their children to delay marriage. You got to finish school first. You got to get a good job first. You got to get out of debt first. And all you're doing is putting your children in opposition to what God is calling them to do in Scripture very plainly. Don't have children until you're ready. Who in the heck is ready to get married and have children? Ever. Do you know what getting married and having children is for? To grow you up. To cause you to take responsibility. To be utterly, crazily dependent on God. When you get married and you have children, you are expressing profound faith in God in heaven. There is nothing more difficult more challenging in this world than to get married. Right. Nothing. Right. And to have children. And here, the it talks of it as a blessing and as a reward. Because it takes utter dependence on God. It takes utter dependence on God. And so those who are Doing parenting for God's glory, prayerfully, searching the scriptures, trying to do it in a way that God has called us to do it by faith, with gratefulness, it is. It can be. 
There's nothing more difficult. There's also nothing more glorious. And you do it by faith. So the example he gives us of this principle is the home. But we can apply this to our building. Brothers and sisters, this is a difficult thing that we're doing here. Considering moving from here to a new building, all of the building we have to do there, all of the income we're calling you to give. And yet we want to do it in a way that is utterly dependent on God. And a key way that you'll know if we're doing this well is how we're sleeping. In verse 2, it says, He gives to His beloved sleep. One of the ways you can evaluate how you're doing in depending on God, whether it's in your work life or in your parenting or in your marriage or on your to-do list or whether uh, transition to a building is how you're sleeping. How you're sleeping. Are you taking the needed rest that God gives you every night of the week? Now, there are times, seasons in our lives where you do have to work late in the night and wake up early and do it, but those, those should be the, the uh, outlier, not the norm. Because that little phrase there, he gives to his beloved sleep, can be taken of one of two ways. The, the language actually seems to indicate that what it means is, while we're sleeping, God is still working. It's agricultural analogy here. Do you remember Jesus telling the parable of the man who sows and then he sleeps and while he's sleeping, God is growing the crops? That is, God is still being productive while he's, you're sleeping. Another way to say it is he doesn't need you. And, and, and you stay up at night going, running in your brain because you're not convinced that God is sufficient. You can sleep and God is still working. In fact, Isaiah 40 says, God works for those who wait for him. God works for those who rest him in him. Another way to say it is, are you going to take a Sabbath rest at the end of your week? Are you needing to be so productive that you can't take a Sabbath break? Is your life so dependent on you that you can't take a break? Do, you, do we trust God in this transition or not? Now, to those of you who are lazy, I'm probably not talking to you here. But I'm talking to those of you who are so uh, work-oriented, so productive, so needing to continue to work that you don't take the rest you need. But here we see that God gives to his beloved sleep. It's a good gift of God. Where you work hard during the day and you sleep at night. You work hard for six days and you take a rest on the seventh. That is a good indication of your dependence on God. And so one way that I want to encourage us to go into this transition is to get the rest you need. In six years, we will not remember uh, if, if you didn't take the rest, but God will. And so let's, get, let's work hard in this transition. Let's do the hard work we need to do. Let's pray. Let's depend on God. And let's take the rest we need also. All right, let's pray. Father, I pray that you bless our transition to this new building. God, I pray that you'd bless us with 
real, true, ongoing dependence on you. And then, God, I pray that you'd bless us through this with the rest we need in it also. So, God, help us to work hard during the day and take our rest at night. Let's Please, God, enable us to work hard for six and enjoy the seventh Sabbath for your glory. And so, God, would you help us to do this well in dependence on you? In Jesus' name, amen.